Morning, everyone. Um, today we're going to be looking at a story in the Gospels where Jesus finds himself and with his disciples in the midst of a really big storm. And I thought in leading into that message, it would be good for us to take some time to pray for the storms of suffering, the storms of hardship that are happening in our community, maybe in our own lives, in the world. Um, I know that this morning, uh, Carl updated me, some of you might not have heard, uh, the largest U.S. massacre, uh, shooting massacre, largest mass shooting in American history happened earlier this morning. Uh, 50, I think it's over 50 dead, over 50 wounded, um, what looks like a Islamic, uh, Islamic terrorist attack on a gay bar in Orlando. And so uh, you'll see lots of coverage of that uh, for the rest of uh, the coming days. Um, but that's, uh, so I'm kind of still processing that emotionally. So it's definitely good as a community to come together and to cry out to God for hope and help for those who are walking through suffering. So what I thought I'd do is uh, I'll open in prayer and I'll start by praying for uh, the massacre in Orlando. You can certainly add your prayers after to that if you'd like. Um, and I invite you to just pray out loud or pray silently, whatever you feel comfortable with. You can pray for uh, specific situations that are known to you. You can pray generally. There's lots of um, dimensions of, of our world that are um, threatened by the forces of chaos and darkness uh, where people feel like they're being overwhelmed and that they're on the brink of death or walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So we're in our workplaces, families, um, for all these things, uh, I invite you to pray. I might throw in a few prayers along the way, but I'll kind of close it with we, we commend all these prayers to God and we, we ask you to, to answer them in your best way in Jesus' name. So that, that'll kind of formally close our time. But until I say that, you're welcome to, um, to pipe up. And if you do pipe up, I know it's sometimes awkward or hard to pray out loud, but even if it's just a word or a statement, try and say it loud so that other people can be in agreement with you in prayer and say amen. If, again, if you're not comfortable praying out loud, that's totally fine, but um, I want to give you full permission to pray out loud. So let's, let's come before God. God, we're reminded in so many ways that um, we live in a world full of storms where the forces of darkness and chaos uh, threaten us from all sides. And this morning, God, uh, it's new to me, but uh, my heart goes out to the victims and their families uh, in Orlando. Um, God, I really pray that your mercy and grace would be... Um, just powerfully expressed and manifested in that situation, especially to a community that um, has maybe been uh, unjustly hurt by the church or by some Christians. I pray that uh, in a church in that area, the, the church is there, that you would raise up a level of love and grace and support and care unlike that community has ever experienced, that you would just overwhelm uh, that darkness and that chaos and that bloodshed with your grace, God, and that um, you would glorify your name by the response of your people through acts of mercy and listening ears and not just today, God, and not just in the coming weeks, but in the coming months and years ahead as um, the victims' families and people of that community uh, seek to process and heal from this, God, but we pray and ask for um, we pray that uh, your word would go out and that through your word and your spirit, 
um, there'd be um, good news, um, good news spread, and that your kingdom would come into that situation where right now it just feels like the kingdom of darkness is ruling and reigning. Thank you for the LVR graduates this weekend and their families. And I pray for those students for whom they face an uncertain future. And it feels like their future is a storm and they don't know where to look to. They don't know what's next for them. And, and in the midst of celebrating graduation, as they look out under the horizon, there can also be a lot of fear. And I just pray that um, you would lead them to yourself, you would guide them to yourself, that they would look to you, they would call out to you, and you would provide the guidance that they need as they move into the next important um, chapter of their life. for anyone dealing with storms in the workplace, God. I pray that you would bring those to stillness, that your peace would, would rule and reign in those situations, that all of our workplaces would be contexts of flourishing and enjoyment and a sense of real vocation um, and just um, help whatever conflicts are going on in different spheres to be worked out maturely and, and confronted so that um, our workplaces can be a place of shalom.
and piggybacking on that prayer, God, um, I would pray that you would sensitize our hearts to um, our, those in our neighborhood and community who are walking through storms who maybe feel like they're alone. They don't feel like they have people that they can uh, talk to um, who can offer practical support. And I pray that you would um, give us hearts that are, that are open to allowing you to facilitate some of those relationships so that, um, like Kevin was saying, we can, we, can, we can bring your light and your love in a very tangible way to those who are not just walking in darkness, but feel like they're walking in darkness alone. Uh, use us, God, as instruments of your peace. God, as we look to your scripture this morning, um, the story of you and the disciples finding themselves in a storm, may you teach us each and all together um, what it means to look to you, uh, what it means to trust in you. May you reveal your power and your glory in a new way in our lives. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bible or your electronic device to Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. Only six verses. Um, they'll be on the screen, though, if you don't have a Bible or you're not familiar with how to navigate one. Mark is one of the Gospels. We've been doing a series through the Gospel of Mark, which highlights the ministry of Jesus. But it's the shortest Gospel. It really compacts a lot of stories together very quickly. And the account we're looking at this morning, uh, it's got to be one of my top ten favorite in the Gospels. It is so amazing, and it has one of the most beautiful, powerful gospel turns at the end. And so I'm really excited to lead us through it and into that, um, into that ending. Okay, I'm going to read it through, and then we'll just move through it kind of verse by verse. Mark 4, 35 to 41. That day when evening came, he said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Verse 35, That day when evening came, remember the context, Jesus has been teaching all day long. He's been teaching publicly to the crowds, privately to the disciples. If you've ever taught in a seminar or workshop or, or had to speak for more than an hour or two, you might understand how drained you would be on every level if you've been teaching all day, just pouring out. Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now, the other side is in reference to the Sea of Galilee. If we put up a map here, right in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's quite large. It's really a lake. They call it the Sea of Galilee. And if we go to the next slide, um, Sea of Galilee, just kind of in the... Oh, I've got a little laser pointer here. Where's my little laser thing? Is it working? Oh, yeah, there it is. So there's the Sea of Galilee. 
And uh, what's happening is likely Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Capernaum, kind of southeast, to a region called the Decapolis. We know that because in the very next account, in Mark chapter 5, the Decapolis is named. Jesus is going to have a confrontation with a demon-possessed man. And once the demon-possessed man is delivered, he returns to the Decapolis. He returns to his hometown. Now, I'll talk about the Decapolis in a moment, or right now, but I'm going to talk about it more next week because it really is very important to understand what's going on here in the context, context of next week's message. But it's still important here. The Decapolis, Decapolis, ten cities, was kind of like an almost independent um, grouping of ten city-states. It was a massive center of Greek and Roman culture. Hellenism, the, the word that we use to describe uh, kind of Greco-Roman philosophy, where we, we, might, we might call it humanism today. Man is the center of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the glory of all things. This, the Decapolis, was an area where this worldview, for a number of uh, generations, had been solidified and promoted. Um, Jewish believers on the west side of Galilee, um, in Samaria, and in Galilee, and down, uh, down in Jerusalem, they referred to Decapolis as the far-off country. Far off both geographically, but far off morally. This Decapolis was the place, there was certainly pagan influence, um, where Jews lived in first century Rome. This is all Roman-controlled. But the Decapolis was kind of like um, an intensified, condensed version. And there wasn't much uh, Jewish witness. There were some synagogues in the Decapolis, but they weren't nearly as numerous as those on, on the west side of the Jordan River. So the Decapolis is a place that a Jewish person would have seen as the symbol of everything that is anti-God. It's, it's an entire grouping of cities who've decided intentionally for generations now to structure their lives around man being the center of all things. They're anti-God, they're anti-scripture, they're anti-Torah, they're, self, they're a self-centered um, culture and society. So when Jesus says, let us go over to the other side, we need to understand that's Jesus saying to them, we're going into enemy territory. It has been difficult here. We've faced demons here. We've faced resistance here by religious leaders. This is something else entirely. We're going to the other side. We're taking the fight of the kingdom into the heart of darkness. And it's not just... So, that, so the disciples hear that, and they had to have been threatened and scared, but it's not just scary where they're going. It's also scary how they're going to get there, which is by boat. Now, the reason why that's challenging and scary and shakes them to their core is that in the first century, almost everybody, Jewish or non-Jewish, feared large bodies of water. And large bodies of water, certainly at least in a Jewish mind, were also synonymous and symbolic of the forces of evil and chaos. They didn't literally believe the forces of, you know, the enemies of God and, and you know, lived in the, in, the, in the waters. But the waters, in the same way that we might think of the number 13 as unlucky, the waters became a symbol for the swirling, unstable, chaotic, evil of forces that are at play in God's world. Now, we might think, why would you think of the sea like that? Well, it makes sense. The sea is mysterious, it's unstable, it's, it's a constantly changing force in the world. 
The sea seems to have no depth. You just kind of disappear into a watery abyss that kind of is symbolic of death and destruction. The sea can produce waves that swallow and destroy boats within seconds. It can send hurricanes and typhoons. It's responsible for floods onto the land that destroy villages. And so everybody avoided deep water if they could. And very few people in a first century context could swim. No one had bronze cross or bronze medallion. There was no swimming lesson. You just avoided deep water. Even fishermen, you don't set out into deep water. You set out into fishing water, but that's not necessarily the same thing as trying to just go all over the lake whenever you want. And the Sea of Galilee, because of its geographic position, was, to this day, very susceptible to uh, very quick um, atmospheric changes, which led to intense storms. So just for, that was just another layer of why it would seem very foolhardy to just get into a boat and be like, oh yeah, we're just going to go over to the other side. Not a big deal. That was very, very dangerous. Where they were going would have struck the disciples as being dangerous. How they were getting there would have struck the disciples as dangerous. Because on both levels, Jesus is saying, I know we've had a big day. I've talked a lot about uh, God and his kingdom and how I'm the king and, 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 and my plan for redemption. Um, yeah, let's, let's cap off this. It's, it's getting late. It's end of the day. We're all tired, but let's go into the heart of darkness. Let's just, we'll go that way. Not retreat back into an easier, safer space, comfortable space. Jesus says we're going to go right into the heart of darkness. And what's amazing is that in this invitation that Jesus is saying, he's testing the disciples, will you obey me? Will you go into uncharted territory? Will you follow me into the dark places of this world? The disciples do it. They, they do obey him. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with them, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. This is, again, very, very common for those in the Sea of Galilee. I was listening to uh, one person this week, or reading one person who... Um, actually talked to a modern-day fisherman in the Sea of Galilee, and he said, have you ever been caught in a storm out on the Sea of Galilee? And the fisherman said, yes, once, and I never want to get caught again. And that was his thing. Like, again, this is not, this is not, um, this is not, oh, a storm, it's uncomfortable. If I get caught in a storm, I might get seasick, and I might kind of get waylaid from my purpose for a, a little bit. This is life-threatening dangerous. Do you guys remember the storm about almost a year ago now that ripped through Nelson Lakeside? Um, it, I don't know how long the storm lasted, seven or nine minutes. Remember that? And the devastation that it caused? Um, I believe that was the same day that my daughter and Hannah uh, McClure were kayaking on the river uh, with Colin. And as the storm picked up, they had to figure out a way to get off. And then they found some shelter and eventually got back to the McClure's home just in the nick of time. But even in that situation, not in an open body of water, just here in that context, with a life jacket on, that's still a very dangerous situation. That is not, oh, well, we'll see what happens. They're probably going to be okay. It's just a little storm rumbling through. That could have been life-threatening. And this is that, those stakes just higher. This is an open body of water. This is no life jackets. This is people who do not know how to swim, and you wouldn't be able to anyways. If you have waves overcoming a ship, um, even a small fishing boat, those are not waves that you're going to be able to just power through and swim to the shoreline. Um, you are, you're, you're dead in the water, literally, if something like this happens to you. 
Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, this is hard for us to understand, but it's an insight that Scripture gives us into the full humanity of Jesus. Jesus, some people hyper-spiritualize this. Oh, Jesus just knew that he was in God's plan and heart and the Father's heart, and so he's just resting in the boat. And I, I, mean, I think that's reading a little bit too much in the text. I think the text has told us why he's asleep on a cushion. It's because he's exhausted. That's why later on, earlier in the passage, it says they took him just as he was onto the boat, even though he was tremendously exhausted and probably not fit to go on the journey across the sea. They took him anyways, and he falls asleep right away. He's deep in REM sleep. Uh, waves and um, all this turmoil is happening and he's still asleep. This is a really powerful, beautiful, important picture of us to just settle on and say, yeah, Jesus wasn't God with skin on as if he was God and then the the human part of him was like fake or was like a ruse. Um, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we see in the Gospels this weird paradox come together beautifully. And here's one here where after teaching all day, after pouring your life out, there are some situations that it doesn't matter what the storm is going on. You're just exhausted, and he's sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They're panicking. They're as good as dead as far as they can tell. Their worst fears has come true. They're going into the heart of darkness, to the land of darkness, through the valley of darkness. Oh, please don't let there be any storms. Just make this as easy as possible. And now a storm is has whipped up. It's like the forces of evil are rising up to prevent them from moving into that territory. Their worst fears have come true, and they're shaking Jesus and saying, don't you care if we drown? This is not a time to sleep. Which is a really rude awakening, right? Imagine if that's the way you got woken up out of sleep. Not, it's time to wake up. Your kid's jumping on you, which never happens to me. Um, But, don't you care if we drown? I mean, if you are, you know those states of sleep where you're in such deep sleep and you are jolted awake and you almost feel nauseous to your stomach. It's, you're just kind of, what is going on, right? And so no doubt, and I think this is part of what, (laughs) of what we see in verse 39. Jesus is probably a little bit grumpy. He woken up from his nice little nap, right? He gets up, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the waves, quiet, be still. Uh, in the vernacular transliteration, we might say, hey, shut up. The word literally means shut. It means to be silenced or muzzled. It's not like, could you please keep it down? I'm trying to nap. This is a rebuke. And a rebuke is a command that is issued with the imposition of a threat. There's an implication that if someone doesn't respond to this command, there's going to be problems for that person. Rebuke, epitomeo. It's a command with the implication of a threat. Jesus is threatening the wind and the waves. I take comfort from this passage because whenever I'm jolted out of sleep by my kids, that's what I say to them too. (laughs) Quiet, be still. And their dad, they're like, Dad, why are you so grumpy? Sorry, I'm just like Jesus. He got upset too. So I use this to justify my own anger. I think you're allowed to do that. So Jesus, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, just simply speaks to them as if he was speaking to a person. And it says, then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And the word in Greek that's used for calm means flat water. Um, so like a lake that has, is 
first thing in the morning, just pristine stillness. And this happens by inference in a matter of moments. It happens very, very quickly. He doesn't rebuke them, and then over 30 or 45 minutes, the storm kind of dies down. The storm, like a beat dog, the storm immediately cowers under the authority of Jesus' words. Complete quiet. No one in the boats are saying anything. Everyone's just stared in the face of death. And now in a moment, everything's been turned and they're safe. And Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples in the boat and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now remember, they have been learning from Jesus, learning under Jesus. He's been teaching all day and for long before that, um, years at this point. They've seen his miracles. They've seen him confront the forces of evil. And yet they still resorted to their own methods of self-salvation. They were still fearful because who he was, not just a great prophet or a great teacher, but as we're going to find out soon, the living God in human form, they, they hadn't connected those dots behaviorally in terms of obedience. They were still ruled by fear. They didn't understand who he was in his fullness. Verse 41, they were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey this guy. He's, he can't just be a prophet. Who is this? Notice in verse 41 it says, they were terrified. Jesus rebukes them for being fearful. He says, why are you so afraid? And the word he uses in Greek is philos, which means fear. Verse 41, Mark says, they were terrified. That's a different word that's used. It's a word of greater escalation. It's phobia, from which we get phobia. In the midst of the storm, they were afraid. Jesus calmed the storm, and now they're terrified. A phobio is a word in Greek that is trying to hold together fear and awe and panic and terror and reverence, all in one thing. Why are they having this reaction? Why would you be scared when your life is on the line, then the storm gets calm, and now you're terrified? Well, remember, these disciples are first-century, God-fearing Jewish teenagers. They've been raised knee-high to a grasshopper on the Torah, what we think of as the Old Testament, their entire lives. And in this moment, it is, I just guarantee you, there are certain passages of Scripture that are coming right to their mind. They've just seen certain Scriptures um, reveal. They've seen certain Scriptures that for them were abstract come to life in a moment predominantly from the Psalms. Psalm 65, 7 celebrates the God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Psalm 89, 9 says, God rules over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, God stills them. Psalm 104, 7, at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, 
they took flight. Psalm 107, 29. God stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea to a hush. Who did these things? The psalmist is celebrating who? The psalmist is saying, the Lord Almighty did these things. And the Lord Almighty alone can do those things. Only the Lord God can calm raging seas and silence them to a whisper simply through words. They were afraid during the storm. Now they're terrified. Why? Because for some of them, the realization is dawning. They thought the biggest threat was outside the boat. But the biggest threat is actually inside the boat. They thought the greater power was outside the boat. The greater power is actually inside the boat. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And that's a rhetorical question. And as we're going to see in Mark, they're starting to put the pieces together. Jesus is doing prophetic things, but he's more than a prophet. He's an amazing teacher, but he's more than a teacher. He's priestly in some ways, but he's more than a priest. He refers to himself in the context of his parables as if he's the king and as if he is the Lord Almighty come in human form. And when that realization dawns on some of the disciples, I mean, you've got to be thinking, the Lord God Almighty was napping in my boat and I roused him from sleep? <laughs> uh, I hope he's merciful. Sorry, God. <laughs> Don't throw me over the side of the boat. But of course, he is merciful, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the story, is Jesus' grand mercy. Jesus steps into this life-threatening situation when he's called upon, and he saves everybody involved. And isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? Isn't that a beautiful window into the good news that Christianity proclaims? But there's another facet to the story that reveals that good news in an even clearer and more stunning way. There's another story in the Bible of a man asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. Does anyone know it? Jonah. Very good. If you don't know the story, God calls the prophet Jonah to Nineveh in order to tell that really wicked pagan city, kind of like the capitalist of, of his day, um, to turn from their sin. Jonah runs away from that calling. He goes in the other direction. He boards a ship bound for Tarshish, and He's trying to completely evade God's call in his life. Jonah 1, 4-6 says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up, and all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him, and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we won't perish. Remember what happens next? Everyone in the boat in the midst of the storm is figuring out, oh, we know why this is happening. It's because Jonah, he told us this when he came on the ship. He's running from his God. He's not obeying what uh, his God told him to do. And this storm is here to punish us and to punish Jonah because he's running away from God's calling on his life. And so they're panicking and they're trying to figure out what to do to remedy the situation. Verse 11 says, The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, Jonah, What should we do to you to make the sea calm for us? 
And Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, if you read all the way to the end of the book of Jonah, and I say that in jest, it's not a very long book. It's four chapters. You can read it in about ten minutes. You actually discover the reason why Jonah ran from God. And the reason why Jonah ran from God is that, was that Jonah, in his heart, despised the Ninevites. He hated them. And he was suspicious that the Lord God was quick to forgive, was abounding in mercy. And he suspected that God was sending him to preach repentance to Nineveh because the people were actually going to listen. And the people of Nineveh would repent. And that would mean God's not going to condemn them and bring calamity upon them. That God's actually going to bless them and welcome them into the people of God. And Jonah essentially says, you don't kind of find this out to the end, but he says, over my dead body, I hate those people. Those kinds of people don't deserve mercy. Those kinds of people are wicked. Those kinds of people stand for every single thing that is anti-God and anti-what I'm about. They des- those kind of people deserve to be under God's wrath. Those kinds of people deserve condemnation. They don't even deserve the chance to hear about an opportunity to repent and turn from their ways and seek God. I want those people to suffer. I wouldn't say that out loud. It's not the right answer. But by my actions, I'm going to make it impossible for God to use me to save them. Jonah wanted to see the Ninevites suffer under the judgment of God. Now in Matthew 12, Jesus says, referring to himself, someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. What is he talking about? Well, one of the important ways over time you have to learn to read the Old Testament is that every single story in the Old Testament points to, hints at, um, reveals a new angle on the gospel. It is pointing the way to Jesus. The gospel gets fully revealed in the life of Jesus, but all these stories whisper Jesus' name. And if we're listening to the story carefully and looking at it in the context of Jesus' life and ministry, we realize, oh, there's an interplay here. The Bible isn't just some uh, cobbled-together book of uh, you know, moral ideas and um, commands. The Bible is a coherent story. It's a coherent story of redemption. And God is seeding out this redemption all the way through the Old Testament, and it culminates in Jesus. See, Jonah sacrificed himself to the storm and throws himself into the abyss, right? The watery sea, the darkness, the forces of evil. He throws himself to those forces so that the sailors could live. Just like Jesus. And you're like, no, that doesn't make sense to me. That's not the story. Jesus doesn't throw himself into the water to save people on the ship. He didn't throw himself off the boat. 
He didn't throw himself into the storm. And Mark wants us to say, to, well, Mark wants us to hear, you're right. Jesus didn't throw himself into that storm. He threw himself into a bigger one. Because that storm wasn't the big threat. There's a bigger storm and a bigger threat. The actual, not symbolic, the actual forces of darkness. The actual oppressive, overwhelming, death-dealing forces of evil and sin and death. Jesus threw himself into that storm. Jesus threw himself into that chaos, that ultimate abyss of sin and death. And he does it on the cross. See, on the cross, when Jesus is being crucified, we're watching Jesus self-sacrifice himself so that we can be saved from the forces of evil and sin and death and condemnation. But notice something. Jonah willingly cast himself into the chaos because his deepest desire was that his enemies would be condemned. I'll throw myself into the waters. He doesn't know the fish is coming. Heads up, spoiler alert. He's trying to kill himself because over his dead body will the enemies of God find mercy. Jesus throws himself into the watery chaos because the deepest longing of his heart is that his enemies could be saved. That you and I, people who by disposition and sinful temperament would much prefer to live with our middle finger turned towards the heavens and say, I don't need God, I don't want God, I'll do what I want. We resist God. Jesus doesn't react like Jonah did and saying, oh, you're going to get what's coming to you. Jesus says, I'll allow myself to be thrown into the chaos so that there's a chance, even a chance, that those who have declared themselves to be my enemy can find healing and restoration and redemption. See, that's the gospel turn in the story, that Jesus threw himself into the chaos, the watery, dark, deadly forces, so that you could be saved into safety. So that your life here, beginning here and now, and then extending out in, into eternity, could be calm and peaceful and blessed. Now here's where that gets really, really practical. There are some of you here this morning who are in the midst of a severe storm. It might be in your marriage, it could be in your family, it might be in your workplace, you prayed through some of the areas. Um, it could be a, some kind of illness that you're walking through. But you are in the middle of a severe storm and you are crying out to God or you're crying out to the void if you don't believe in God. You are crying out, do you care if I drown? Is there anybody who actually cares if I drown? I'm being overwhelmed I can't go on. The waves are overtaking me. Does anybody care if I drown? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus hanging on the cross, throwing himself into the very forces of death and sin on your behalf. Yes, there is someone who cares whether or not you drown. There's someone who cares so much he willingly put himself in your place so that you could be saved. God loved you so much he threw himself into the darkness for you. And that means 
that you might not have an answer. You might not have a reason for understanding and trying to piece together. Why am I going through the storm? Why is this happening to me? What's the answer? Like, I, I don't understand. Sometimes we're not given that answer. But scripturally, we know what the answer isn't. And the answer isn't that you're suffering like this because God doesn't love you or because God wants you to drown or, God, or because God doesn't care. That is not the answer. And we know that from this text. We know that from the ultimate life and ministry of Jesus. God does care if you drown. And so this morning, reach out to him. Call upon his name. Rouse him through prayer and get him in your boat because he is Lord over the storm and he is mighty to save. Let's pray. For my friends here, God, who are walking through storms, may you reveal yourself in a powerful way this morning. Would we become aware of our need for you? May the glory and grace of the gospel grip us in a new way that while we were enemies and while we didn't deserve mercy and grace and salvation, we deserve condemnation, you threw yourself into the watery chaos for us. A greater one than Jonah has come. Help us to respond to that message in faith and hope. In your strong name we ask these things. Amen.